if you've had a life of staggered brain development, you cannot educate them to the level of education in America because the brain development didn't happen. It sounds cruel and wrong and everything else, but that's how crucial it is. So a lot of what we focus on is health education for the kids and getting clean water for the kids so that we can prevent that from happening so that they can have healthy brain development, healthy bodies, and therefore be educated and grow and be uh, achieve better things in life. According to the CDC, an estimated 2.2 billion people need access to safely managed drinking water, including 884 million currently without basic drinking water services. And incredibly, 1 in 10 people around the world still have no access to safe drinking water. Now, for you and I, we just go in there and turn the tap water on, right? Here in the Memphis area, we've got some incredible artesian well water that we don't even think about. It's that delicious water. You take a run around Shelby Farms Park, what's the first thing you grab? Water. In this kind of conditions we're having outside right now with heat indexes well over 100 degrees, you want water. For many people around the world, that's just not safe because drinking water isn't safe. In Peru alone, 50% of people don't have access to safe drinking water. Today, we welcome the liquid legacy to the program, Mid-South Viewpoint. Piet Stridum is the director. He and his wife, Sue, are doing incredible work with this ministry. And they're no strangers to Mid-South Viewpoint. Piet, trying to remember how long ago it's been. It's been a couple of years ago since you were on the show. Yeah, it's been a while back. We've been uh, running Liquid Legacy for a little over three years now. And I guess probably about two years ago than when we were in here chatting about what we started doing. How's Sue doing? She's great. Yeah. She keeps me on track, keeps yeah. me organized. What's it like working with your spouse in ministry together? <laughs> <laughs> we're probably one of those odd couples that uh, we actually really enjoy it. We really have fun with it. We work very differently. So as long as we kind of respect each other's differences in that, um, we really have fun working together. So I have a bit of a routine where two or three days a week, I have to get out of the house and go sit and do work in a coffee shop. That gives me my clear space and I do really good there. She does not do good in the coffee shop. She wants to <laughs> sit at home, quiet, control the space. So we, uh, we split our time that way. But we both love what we're doing. And uh, getting to do that together with, with your spouse, for us, it's really special. Well, for those wondering, the accent is not South Memphis. It's South <laughs> Africa, right? <laughs> Sometimes I say, hey, I'm from Mississippi, but nobody believes me. So, yeah, born and raised in South Africa. Conditions right now in South Africa amidst the pandemic, you, I'm sure mm-hmm. you have family and friends there. Oh, yeah. What's the situation like? It's it's not good, and it's, you know, like a lot of places, got a crazy world we live in right now. Uh, feels crazier than usual, even. There, it's, it's similar. You've got the pandemic. The infection rate, the numbers there is, is really bad. Healthcare is not the greatest. Unlike here, where, you know, if you wanted to, you have access to good vaccines versus there, the majority of the vaccines available in South Africa, same with most of the third world countries, developing countries any of the struggling countries is they don't have access to the same vaccines. So they have to rely on vaccines coming out of Russia and China, and they don't trust those. And then on top of that, there's still a lot of political turmoil. Um, They just had some major riots a couple weeks ago. Uh, Everybody was in lockdown, less for the virus and more for the safety, burning down shopping centers, those kind of things. So it's, yeah, Yeah. sad. The heart of the human race, Uh, whether you're in South Africa or in Memphis or Los Angeles or Beijing, the heart is, is seeking some peace. Yeah. It's in turmoil, searching maybe through religion or through power or whatever. But you and I both have discovered there's only one way to know yeah. 
and that's through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah. It's the only transformative power that can really transform the human heart and turn us away from those things. So desperately needed in a lot of places in the world today. When the pandemic first broke out, I read an article. I should have called you. I don't know why I didn't call you. I read an article about the conditions in an area of Peru Mm -hmm. that were very dismal. They were getting hit very hard. There was a lot of lives lost due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I reached out to a mission organization that I was familiar with, Mm -hmm. had seen their work and known them for many, many years since Bible college. I was hoping yeah. to do a radio program. They were on the ground. They were involved with ministry there. They never reached out, never oh, wow. heard back from them. Obviously, things happen. And, you know, yeah. anyway, the conditions in Peru, where your heart is, because yeah. that's where the Liquid Legacy does a majority of its ministry. And so we want to talk about that today. But talk about how yeah. the virus is affecting the people there. Yeah, it's, um, I guess, a couple months ago now, they released new data putting uh, Peru basically at the largest number of infections per capita. So the, there's more people per capita there uh, that have caught the virus than anywhere else in the world. Uh, and it's, you know, there's, I think there's a couple different contributing factors there. The country is so diverse, first of all. Um, you know, you don't think of a country that small being that diverse, but you've got those that live in the city. Uh, they live in, in tight-knit quarters, kind of like what we have in Chicago and New York, kind of big city. Uh, Lima is the, the third largest city in the Americas, to give you an idea. So it's mm-hmm. millions of people crammed into a, uh, into a small, tight knit quarters. Uh, In the jungle, you're not quite that way. You're spread out more. It's small villages, those kind of things. But the culture there is a very much a close-knit culture. So personal space is not a thing there. Sharing is is, uh, a huge thing, sharing food, sharing drink. For instance, if you went into a school pre-pandemic, there'd be a, um, a water station in the front of the classroom with one cup and it's a shared cup. It's a community cup. Everybody, if you want a cup of water, you go fill that cup. You drink out of it. You put it back there, and the next person comes grabs it. It doesn't get washed throughout the day. It's a very sharing culture. So that was one, one big part of it because obviously the, the virus has spread that way very easily. And then the other thing, especially in the regions where we are, if you get outside of the city, we had the advantage here. You know, um, The pandemic hit. We started getting the news of what's going on. And what did we all do? We all went to the store, we bought our toilet paper, we bought our paper towels, we bought our cleaning supplies, we bought food, and we have fridges and freezers in our homes that we stocked up on, and most of us could survive for a few weeks with what we stocked up on. majority of the folks in Peru don't have a fridge, they don't have a freezer, they don't have any way to preserve things long term. They live in a very hot climate, it's, it's tropical rainforest, they live day by day. You have food for today and you think about what you need for today and tomorrow morning maybe, and then tomorrow you'll go fish for tomorrow, you'll go harvest for tomorrow, you'll go trade in the market. So the pandemic suddenly shutting down everything, they had nothing. There was no, if they don't go find a market or somebody to trade with or go out in the field and work it or go fish, then there is no food. There's no stocking up. So that forced them to continue being in close proximity with people. The markets couldn't shut down. If they shut them down, people would starve. So then you had close-knit quarters with the markets, and that just spread the virus. So majority of the villages that we work in, it was rampant, and we lost, sadly, a lot of the older folks. I mean, reports I heard, Piet, were so disturbing. They were talking about families would just put bodies of their loved ones in bags to be picked up because there were dying so many. Was that true? In certain areas, yeah. It was so fast and so many people dying that funeral homes, the graveyards, could not keep up with the demand. There was, there was more people dying that they could handle coming in on those bodies. Again, 
we have refrigeration for yes. those things. Yes. And we've all learned about that a little bit here. Um, they don't have that luxury there. So uh, it's, it's bad. You haven't been, I'm assuming you haven't been back to Peru since the pandemic, or have you? No, I was last in Peru. We did two trips in the beginning of 2020. So um, we had full eight or nine trips scheduled for 2020 to Peru alone. And uh, we had gotten the first two trips in. One was a medical team that we had in there doing medical clinics in the rural villages. And then the second one was with uh, Downline Ministries doing some discipleship training. And... Uh, Shortly after that is when the pandemic hit. So February of uh, 2020 was the last I was there. And um, actually our missionary, our main missionaries, Tom and Rita Huff, um, who live full-time down there when they can, uh, they evacuated. And they were just yesterday for the first time um, able to go back to Peru. So is it open right now to go back? Yeah, it is open. Um, so uh, technically we can travel. Uh, a lot of hoops to jump through, obviously. Um, there's not a quarantine in place when we get there, so we can we can go. The issue is that in the rural area where we work, as if I went there or I took you there, and want, you test positive. So then I have to find a place to isolate you, and hopefully your symptoms are okay and mild, and you can just isolate and, and get through it. But if you need hospitalization... Um, we have to medevac you out of the Amazon jungle. Um, the cost and the logistics to that um, prohibits us from being able to take teams in. So yeah. I'm hoping to get in there before the end of the year. Um, it'll probably just be four of us that, that go in. But I can't take a team in and risk that chance of somebody testing positive, And then they're either stuck there and we have to find a place to isolate them. Or worst case scenario, they, they need hospitalization or medical care. And uh, there is none there. Yeah. Well, I think we need to kind of move our conversation into the work of the Liquid Legacy. Yeah. Pre-pandemic, what you would expect like describing life in the jungle regions of Peru. Man, I love the jungle. Um, the <laughs> life is uh, life is. We can look at it very very easily as a very idyllic life. You know, they live in paradise. It's beautiful. Um, you can you can go in and see the beauty of it. But life is really hard in the jungle. Um, these folks are. Uh, living a very hard life of living from the land, farming. Most of them are farmers and fishermen. That's what they, they live off of. Uh, and then they eat in what they catch or what they grow, and then they exchange that for some other goods as well. Um, majority of the folks there, we, we work in a city called Pucallpa. So we're on the other side of the Andes Mountains in the jungle, 700, 750,000 people. So roughly the size of Memphis almost, mm-hmm. um, but it is an open tour city. So there's literally ditches on the side of the road where the sewer goes, and the sewer just runs straight into the river system where you fish and wow. eat from. So we can see how that could be problematic. Yes. Um, and it's, it reminds me of Memphis in a lot of ways. It's a city built on a bluff on a big river that looks a lot like the Mississippi. The most amazing people, they are unbelievably friendly and loving and grateful for anything there. They have so little, and they're so grateful for what they have. And that's, that's why it's such a joy to work with them, too. What is your partnership that you have with Living Waters for the World? Mm -hmm. I noticed that you have this partnership. Yeah, Yeah, they're a great organization out of Mississippi. Many years ago, they developed a very simple uh, but effective water filtration system that is absolutely chemical-free. And we use their system to purify water in Peru. So we've got nine systems up and running um, in Peru right now, and uh, they're all Living Waters for the World systems. They, um, They use filters. Uh, and then we use a UV light to kind of as the final 
um, we that's our our insurance policy to make sure the yeah. water is purified. Yeah, is this a water system in a box, or was there more components to it? What constitutes a system? It is. Let's see. There's three filters: a pump, a UV light, uh, and a lot of PVC. And that's pretty much it. It's it's a very simple system. Uh, we are lucky in the city where where we work. There is uh, water supply, so we tap into that existing water supply. It's contaminated, so we we nobody can drink the water as it comes into your house. So that's where some of the numbers are skewed. With the CDC, for instance, saying over fifty percent don't have. Um, running water in their homes. Um, but even some of the folks, majority of the folks that have running water in their home, they can't drink that water. Yeah. And so we tap into that existing water source and we run it through our system. It's got three filters and then a UV light that it runs through and then it's purified. Uh, the filters go down to, I think, 0.05 microns. Okay. So nothing gets through that. Um, the beauty of the system is we buy everything in country. So when we put in a new system, we don't have to take all the stuff from the U.S., which also means when something breaks or needs replacing or needs repairing, they don't have to rely on us. They can fix it in country. How often would you have to change out the filters? They have quite a long lifetime. The the trash filter, the first one that just kind of catches the debris, that one lasts quite a few years. This just needs to be cleaned out regularly. Um, the two finer filters, depending on how much water they run through them, uh, they re- get replaced every three to six months. Um, they get cleaned in between, uh, but they last three to six months easily, and uh, they're not that expensive for them to, to replace. Yeah. Part of what we do is teach them a small business model. These systems need to be self-sustaining. They can't rely on us from America or from the West coming in and doing everything all the time. Yes. So a part of what we do is teaching them a small business model so that they can have an income, pay somebody to operate the system, and pay for the the upkeep of the system themselves. Teaching the community to use clean drinking water is a big part of what you do. Absolutely, yeah. It doesn't help us giving them clean water and we don't teach them how to keep it clean um, and how to use it. Uh, so the, the health education component there is critical. I know you've made many trips to Peru and I know you're anxious to get back and oh, yeah. be there among the people. You talk about the beautiful people of Peru. What stands out to you, Piet, about their lives, knowing their stories, their struggles, when you hear about their dreams? Hearing about their dreams, I think the big thing there for me is realizing how, no matter how how different things look from the outside in terms of the color of our skin or the culture that we live in, the house that we live in, the things that we have or don't have, um, when it comes to the heart, we all have the same hopes and dreams. You know, they have the same hopes and dreams for a, a healthy um, God-fearing marriage that I have. You know, they have the same hopes and dreams for their spouses that I have. When I, I see what their dreams are for their kids, it's no different from the dreams that you have for your kids, that they would have a good life, that they would have a better life than you do, um, and that they would be fulfilled in life, that they would uh, live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. It's, it's the same hopes and dreams there. Um, the thing that sticks out for me about the people there is, honestly, is their gratitude. Um, they are... We can look at it very easily and go, they have nothing compared to us. You know, they, their homes are not as nearly as big or as nice. Most of them don't have a vehicle. They, they use a motorcycle taxi system there to get around. You look at what they have materialistically, and it's very little. But you look at the gratitude that they have for the little things that they have and how happy they are in life. Mm. And sometimes things we have that a little backwards there. We're missing the mark on that one. I think we are missing the mark on that too often, sadly enough. 
When you talk about the area of Pucalla and ways that people make their living, you mentioned fishing and farming, but is there other industry there? The main things happening there, lumber is a huge industry there, um, very controversial um, because there's both legal and illegal lumbering going on, and it's, it's hard to distinguish. Lumber is a lot of a huge industry there, brings in a lot of money into the city, but it also means we're cutting down rainforest. Um, so there is a, a lot of issues around that, but it's a large industry there. Um, there's an oil refinery there, so that has some, some jobs and things there. Um, there's a beer plant and a bottling plant facility, so that's kind of some of the industry that's there. Uh, unfortunately, a large industry is the drug trade. The U.S. has done a good job at uh, shutting down the drug trade out of Colombia, and Colombia has really turned around as a country. Um, we used to never think about good, going to Colombia. Now, I'd go to Colombia on vacation. It's a beautiful country. Um, but a lot of that drug trade has moved south into the jungles of Peru. And so now Pucallpa, where we are, it's a river port city, um, and it's connected to Lima, the capital. So there's a lot of drug trade that comes through there, um, which we see. We see the use of it. We see the effects of it. And unfortunately, that's that's a big part of the trade there, yeah. Then have you worked with some coffee growers in the past? Yeah, the coffee has grown mostly in the Andes Mountains okay. regions, uh, a little bit more altitude. Um, we've partnered here in Memphis with Dr. Bean Coffee and Tea Emporium, I think is the full name. Yeah. Uh, but Dr. Bean is, is, a, is a great company here in Memphis, coffee roaster. They've got a little shop downtown. And uh, we've partnered with them, so they have a liquid legacy coffee bean. And it's got our logo on it and, and branding. And uh, it's a Peruvian blend of coffees that they get directly from farmers in Peru, uh, roasted for us here. And then uh, $10 of every bottle, a bag of coffee sold. Uh, goes to Liquid Legacy towards the water system. So we want our friends to make sure in the Memphis area to know to yeah. go. And where's the location of this coffee shop? They have a shop downtown at, I think it's 387 South Main uh, in the Stock and Bell building there. And uh, you can also buy it online from their website. So you can go to their Facebook page, Dr. Bean's Coffee, and you can order the Liquid Legacy coffee straight from there as well. Deliver it right to your house. That sounds delicious. I know you are a coffee connoisseur yourself. <laughs> ah, I'm a little bit of a snob there, yes. <laughs> Piet, how much of the health issues in the areas that you hope to reach could be greatly reduced, the health concerns mm-hmm. that are there? How much of these concerns could be greatly reduced or possibly eliminated if the people had access to the good drinking water? Uh, yeah, we take in medical teams three to four times a year pre-COVID, uh, and we find that about 80% of the medical issues that we treat is waterborne, 80% of it. So a lot of it is parasites. Um, almost everybody, especially when you get outside of the city into the jungle regions, um, you, uh, you run into Everybody, 100% of folks, have parasites. Uh, it comes from the dirty water they drink, uh, bad hygiene that they, they don't know any better. Uh, and the parasites have, you know, it's not, the only, it's not the only issue, but it causes a lot of knock-on effects. So we have a very high rate of uh, anemia in the jungle. So this is where it gets really tough for us because uh, when you have a child, for instance, that drinks bad water, gets parasites, what the parasites do is they take up all the nutrition. So it doesn't matter what fruits and vegetables and fish and healthy foods that you eat. We look at it and we see a very healthy diet that right. way in the, in the jungle. Um, but the parasites will be the one that sucks up that nutrients. And so there's very, very few nutrients left for the body. So what happens when you starve your body from nutrients is you starve your brain development, physical development. So a lot of times in the West we would look at you know education and we go education is key. We've got to educate these folks, bring education to these villages. Um, and 
the problem is when you have a child that is deprived from nutrition because of the, the parasites, their brain cannot develop the way that our brains are meant to develop. Yeah. So uh, when they're deprived from those nutritions, brain development is stagnated. And it's irreversible. So by the time you get to be an adult, 18, 20 years old, 22 years old, if you've had a life of staggered brain development, you cannot educate them to the level of education in America because the brain development didn't happen. It sounds cruel and wrong and everything else, but that's how crucial it is. So a lot of what we focus on is health education for the kids and getting clean water for the kids so that we can prevent that from happening so that they can have healthy brain development, healthy bodies, and therefore be educated and grow and be uh, achieve better things in life. You're building a foundation, yeah. but you have to sustain the community first through yeah. getting the healthiest water possible for them. In Rwanda, for example, you know, there was the same situation with children under five, and there's mm-hmm. called the One Egg Project. I don't know if you've yeah. heard of that, One oh, yeah, Egg a Day. You know? program. So there are places in the world where we don't think about that, because, again, we have our refrigerators, yeah. our grocery stores, <laughs> and we don't think about access to these supplies yeah. that help us. Of course, we do have food deserts in our community. We Absolutely. Have, we have people who are not benefiting from a good diet and, and even drinking water in some areas of our country like we've seen yeah. in some places. Okay, so the medical teams, and you mentioned two mm-hmm. or three times a year that you take them. What does a typical day look like for them? How many patients do they see? Where do they set up their clinics? So we've got a couple different ones. Um, we have a... Uh, pediatric team that we take down that has we take we have two surgeons pediatric surgeons from Le Bonner that goes down with us with a small team and they'll actually do pediatric surgery in the local hospital um, so that's one kind it's a smaller medical trip and it's very focused we'll pre-screen uh, so by the time that team gets there there is a, a caseload lined up for them and they'll they'll focus on primarily pediatric surgeries um, so that's one kind of trip we then do uh, the main one we probably do is our clinics so we take medical folks uh, dental folks physical therapists uh, and we set up field clinics so we'll do that both in the city and in the rural areas and that's what we see the most uh, impact well both have huge impacts, but that's where we see the most people. Uh, so in a five-day period, we can see about 1,600 families, 1,600 folks. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a busy day. It's a busy day every day. So we either do those in the city, and we'll do five days, five different locations on the outskirts of the city, or we'll take them on a large boat deep into the jungle. And every morning you wake up at a new village, we'll set up clinic. That's typically a clinic is outside under a mango tree right on the banks of the river. Uh, We'll set up clinic there, treat everybody we can in the village, give everybody a health screening kind of thing, treat them for parasites. Anything we can do, we do for them. Uh, That's also how we find a lot of the surgeries that are needed so that whether it's our team or a different team, we've also got an ENT team, the Dr. Shea team that goes down there once a year. So we'll line up cases that we find in the village, make sure we have contact information and how to get them to that surgical opportunity. But we'll treat yeah, in a five-day period, we'll treat fourteen to 1,600 patients, no problem. Piet, I love what you're saying here. I'm hearing you say Dr. Shea. Yeah. I'm hearing you say LeBonner. I'm hearing you say Downline Ministries. These are local organizations yeah. that are doing incredible work and how you're networking these groups. Yeah. That's amazing. 
Yeah, we're fortunate in that, you know, Liquid Legacy is three years old. I've been going to Peru for about six or seven years now. But the work we're doing there is on the shoulders of Dr. Shea. So Dr. Shea is still with us. He's 92, I believe, or about to be 92, and still has a great sense of humor. But he started going down to Pucallpa 40 years ago. Um, And there's a whole story about a patient that I say conned him into going there because he wasn't necessarily wanting to go. But he realized that he had – he had a talent uh, and, and a gifting for a specific surgery that has to do with the, the nose and the breathing and the throat. That's something very common and simple here, and it was a huge issue in the jungle there for the folks, and especially the Shipibo people that we work with. And so he started taking a team down there every year doing these surgeries. Uh, and that's 40 years ago. So along the way came Dr. Shipman. He's a local now-retired dentist. He's also the chairman of our board. Um, Dr. Shipman started going down there together with a close friend, Calvin Osier, later um, a, a good friend of theirs, uh, Johnny Dobbs, joined them. Shipman would actually go into the jungles and extract teeth, just pull teeth, because you can't do fillings and those kind of things there. So if it's a bad tooth, they just pull them. If he didn't come along, they would just live with that until it falls out, rots out, and which obviously has knock-on effects as well. And so he did countless trips over the last 30 years doing that and is still going back with us now. Wow. Uh, he's done with the teeth pulling, but he still goes <laughs> down there. Uh, so we're, you know, we've built Liquid Legacy on the shoulders of these giants that have come before us. And the, the hope has been to kind of bring all these different things that have been happening out of Memphis into Pucallpa under one umbrella um, and, and not let it end with a, that generation. Yeah. Um, you know, Dr. Shea is not able to go anymore. Right. Um, but his photo is hanging in the hospital in Pucallpa, <laughs> and to them, he is a hero. Yes. You know, he's, he's the only gringo whose photo is hanging in that hospital. <laughs> um, and so now today we have still that relationship with Dr. Shea. He's on, he's on our advisory panel. Dr. Shipman is chairman of our board. And then um, we have a you know, Meridian nephew of Johnny Dobbs, who's passed away years back, that is also on our board. So a lot of that is, is brought together, and then we've expanded. So now we have a relationship with you know, Downline Ministries. We've got the surgeons from Le Bonheur. We have a, a partnership with Campbell Clinic doing um, orthopedics down there. We have a partnership with the University of Memphis, taking University of Memphis students there, uh, both there and now in our expansion in Abaco. Hutchinson School just signed up recently to be a partner with us. So it's expanding that partnership of across the board, both schools, ministries, colleges, doctor's offices, and coming together with a common goal of just doing good and being good people out there. I love it. Yeah, this has been great. I'll tell you what, we don't have any more time, but I want to continue the conversation if you can do that. Absolutely. We've got a whole lot more to talk about. We've had to touch a few of my questions. (laughs) You're doing a great job, but I want folks to know right now how they can find out more about The Liquid Legacy. They can go to theliquidlegacy.org. So theliquidlegacy.org. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, The Liquid Legacy Project. Find us there, follow us, like us, send us a message. Uh, We'd love to hear from you, love to hear any questions they have. All right. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on today's show. We're going to be back on the next program with Piet Stridham and talk more about The Liquid Legacy here on Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. Hope you have a great afternoon. Bye-bye now.